Hello, Duke fans. This is episode 179 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. We are coming to you just minutes after Duke beat Brown 75-50. to I'm your host this week, Donald Wine. I'm coming to you from my parents' house in Dallas-Fort Worth, where I was for the holidays. And in just a little bit, I'm off to the airport for more holiday travel. Uh, Sam Klein, he left us. He's on the other side of the world this week for his vacations. (laughs) But I do have Jason Evans with me, who is coming to us from his home in Atlanta. Jason, hello, sir. Hey there, Donald. Um, Yeah, it's just uh, just the two of us going uh, not solo, but duo this week. Um, We have never had a podcast recorded from Vietnam, um, but I hope Sam will be able to join us sometime soon so we can say that our international reach has now extended to Vietnam. Yeah, before the podcast, we were talking about the number of countries that we have all recorded from. Uh, it's, it's a numerous list of, I know, domestic cities and international cities. Hopefully next week, we will add Vietnam to the list. Uh, but for now, it's just the two of us. And this is something we haven't done in a while. We're recording just minutes after a Duke game. So we get to get some instant reactions. Uh, Duke 75-50 to 50 over Brown in a game that was pretty sloppy on the offensive end. And then uninspiring in the first half, but they got together in the second half, didn't they, Jason? Oh, yeah, big time. Um, and, and we should point out, this is one of those games, you're going to look back um, you know, at the end of the season and see that Duke beat Brown by 25 and go, yeah, so what? But this was a very much a competitive game um, you know, until the final five to seven minutes or so. In fact, with nine minutes left, uh, it was 46 to 55. Duke only led by 11. And, and I mean, just a few minutes before that, Brown had been as close as like eight points or so. Um, I don't think they ever got less than eight in the second half. I'd have to look back and see. But um, but then Duke just went on a big run uh, late in the game, uh, led mostly by by Alex O'Connell. Um, and I think one of the, one of the interesting stories about this game was, you know, Joey Baker got the start and. Um, you know, I, I talked last podcast about the fact that I was sort of mystified that Joey Baker was as low as he was in the rotation, considering how good he was in games. And I was like, oh, maybe he's a game player, not a practice player or whatever. But so Coach K finally gives Joey Baker a start after, I mean, Baker's had like three or four games in a row where he's been unbelievable. And Joey responds by going 0 for 4 from 3. <laughs> right. <laughs> and just 1 of 6 from the field. And I don't know if you noticed this um, in the second half. I think, I, I feel like maybe Joey started the second half. I don't remember. But he got very little playing time in the second half. The second half, Alex O'Connell was the guy with the hot hand. He's the only player on this Duke team to hit any three-pointers. Um, and he had uh, he hit a couple long jumpers. And you sort of saw him go, okay, after, boy, weeks of being in a slump, I found my shooting stroke again. Um, I thought he had a fabulous game. He was he he, he was getting his hands on lots of rebounds. I, I felt like he had some deflections. Um, and and I, I you know in a game where Duke was really struggling to score, it was O'Connell that allowed us to stretch out this lead and turn a somewhat uncomfortable game into a comfortable win. Yeah, and you know in the first half, I think it. Again, it's a tale of two halves. So the first half, uh, big tank. Uh, Vernon Carey was really the man inside. He was uh, very imposing with his presence. And in the second half, like you said, it's you know it's been a shooter. And I think the last few games has been a different shooter. Uh, this time it was Alex O'Connell. I, I 
you know, the first thing that I saw that he was getting his stroke by shooting a lot of Kyle Singler long two pointers. Yeah, and, he hit two. In, <laughs> he hit two in a row that I swear his foot was on the line. I was like, Alex, really? His dude. Foot, yeah, his foot was like. <laughs> I mean, it was one of those things where it's almost like he looked down and said, "No, I'm not going to take a three. I'm just going to make this a two because I know I'll make it." And in uh, fact, I think so, one of the what really quick. I think one of those would have been a three in the on the old three point line. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was one where he has like his pinky toe was on the line but i think that's what we needed to get you know out of a little slump you know they talked about the during the broadcast that was our 1071st game hitting a three and it took until about what six minutes left in the game before we finally hit one it was that well you were i was looking at score like hey we haven't hit three yet like we're not shooting a ton of them but we're also not making any what's the deal um, I was worried. So, I was very worried that the streak was going to end. <laughs> there was a point. I, I feel like you know Alex O'Connell bailed us out. There was a you know a couple that should have been threes, uh, and it's not like we took some terrible threes. They were all just not going in. So I wasn't too concerned about that. But we talked about this before the last game, before this game. You know, we were talking about the, the layoff and, and just guys going home for Christmas. Coming Coming back, that showed in the first half. Those guys were not ready to play. Coach K called a timeout, threw his jacket immediately, and spent a timeout <laughs> just giving them the business. And, uh, you know, th- that sort of uh, – he wants that energy all the time. We, I think all of us, all of us as fans do too. And it wasn't pre- present there. And I think Brown seized on that in the first half, which is why it was so competitive for, for most of it. Towards the end of the first you know, half, we went on a little run, and then – and then we took it, you know, I think the second half is where we really opened it up. But the first half was competitive because Brown came ready to play and we didn't. Yeah. And uh, look, uh, this was a game where you felt like Duke needed some WD-40. We were we were incredibly <laughs> rusty. Um, yeah. and, and, and you could sense it. And look, there's a reason that, that Coach K schedules an opponent like this at this point in the season to get you to get some of the rust off. Because I think I think I heard this was just our second game in 22 days or something mm-hmm. like that, and uh, it, it was apparent, and it it was apparent not just in the outside shooting that was abysmally bad, but look, I I, I didn't think we were incredibly crisp um, early on, especially in in our defense um, throughout the game. There there were a number of times that Brown um, got angles to the basket that I I think Duke's quicker, more athletic perimeter defenders should have been able to cut off a little bit better. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, it's to be expected. I, I, I wish I had time. Like you said, we're doing this as an instant reaction. If I had more time, I would go back and look. I think over the years, this game, the first game, sort of the Christmas break, is traditionally one where, where Duke sort of, you know, struggles and, and doesn't play mm-hmm. great. So, uh, look, wait, we ended up getting a 25-point win. I'll take that. I, I want to talk a little bit about, you mentioned it briefly, about Vernon Carey. Um, I want to talk about just in general us feeding the post because both Carey and Matthew Hurt and and Jack White, for that matter, um, did a great job of we recognized the the mismatches when they were there. We fed the ball to these guys deep in the post a lot of the time. I thought we did an incredible job of of uh, the the post to post, you know, high post to low post kind of passing. Um, it was all really strong and it, it gave us a lot of easy shots. And in a game where we were struggling mightily to get baskets from the perimeter, our ability to really dominate on the inside was a huge story. I mean, Jack White gets nine points, Vernon Carey gets 19, um, Matthew Hurt gets eight. And I, I swear, virtually every one of those points by those three guys were, uh, you know, within, uh, Javin Delorier had a pair, had two points as well. But uh, all the points by those guys were within, 
you know, three feet of the basket. And Vernon Carey Jr.'s ability to finish when, um, you know, when his body was at awkward angles sometimes, he's just, he, he can finish very athletically and acrobatically for, for a guy his size and his weight. The conventional wisdom is that, you know, sort of that back to the basket kind of game just isn't something that you do in basketball anymore. You know, all the, all the new analytics say you want to take a, a different caliber of shot. I mean, we've seen it in the NBA, the reason Jalil Okafor is not valuable in the NBA so much. But I feel like Vernon Carey converts at such a high percentage, such a high level, that maybe he renders some of that analysis, if not moot, um, somewhat, you know, muted uh, because uh, because of his ability to finish. His finishing, especially in the first half, that's the only reason we had to lead at halftime. He's so nimble, like, inside the paint. I think that's like the best quality about his game is that you, like yeah. you said, you could, he could catch the ball under the basket and he'll figure out a way to put it in. It, I think that's what separates him from a lot of the, you know, the centers that we've seen you know around college basketball this year is that when he gets the ball, he has a way of figuring out how to get to the hole. And if it's not the most direct route, he can still figure out a way to get there. And just the fact that he can catch the ball inside, he, he, sometimes caught the ball high and dribbled down and turned around and, and had an acrobatic land. He has a way anytime he catches the ball to figure out a way to get to the hoop. And I think that is the best thing that I see about his game. And that makes it so that no matter who the opponent is, no matter how, how strong uh, the interior guys are, he's going to find a way to get his points. And that's why he ended up with 19 again. And I'm like, Oh yeah, 19. That sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. Only six rebounds for him. But Duke, I thought did such a great job of rebounding as a team. Um, we had 45 rebounds as a team, and we had so many different guys grabbing boards. Uh, White had six. Carey had six. Gord- Jordan Goldwire had five. Wendell Moore had seven. Alex O'Connell had four. We just did a really good job, I think, of rebounding as a team. Um, God, are you hearing all that dog in the background? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Cameron, Cameron, Cameron is loving the rebounding, and he's loving Vernon Carey's game. Yeah, exactly. Either that or we have painters at our house and, and my dog thinks it's his job to bark at anyone who comes to the front door. <laughs> <laughs> I but mean, the, it's after the holidays, so you're probably getting yeah, some packages. You know. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, the bottom line is I thought um, we did a great job of team rebounding. The other thing I wanted to mention is, you know, Trey Jones misses his second game in a row. Uh, they, they keep on saying this is a very mild foot sprain. And, and I know that we're playing teams where we don't. We clearly didn't need Trey Jones to get us the victory, um, but I'm, you know, I'm just a touch, tiny little bit concerned. When he missed the last one, I was like, yeah, okay, no big deal. We've got eight days, whatever it was, seven or eight days until the next game. Um, for him to miss a second game in a row when they're this far apart, uh, I, I just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little tiny bit worried. We're about to start ACC play. We're about to start previewing ACC games and and ACC opponents. Um, as, as nice as the past couple games have been in terms of Duke winning the game fairly comfortably, uh, we got to need Trey Jones <laughs> in a pretty big way. I hope this was just an overabundance of caution and, and not perhaps a sign that, um, we may, we may miss Trey for even more time. Cause from now on it all counts in a very big way. So I, I'm not as concerned and won't be until, we play Boston College on Tuesday night because they've maintained that if these games were ACC games that he would play and that he would play in his normal minutes. Right. So right. really the, it's the point is when we get to this for this game against BC, if he's not in the lineup, then we go, oh, 
maybe something's going on. But until then, I attribute it to, you know, hey, let's get the rest he needs against, you know, some teams that we should be okay without him. And at the end of the day, if, you know, we got two wins without him, now comes ACC season, and hopefully everybody's at full strength. Yeah, exactly. Well, and the other thing is, you know, hey, here's a game that we win where we can't hit anything from outside. I hope that um, I hope that we can do better than two for 16 once ACC season rolls around. That would be um, great. You know, yeah, maybe, maybe uh, you know, law of averages, uh, we'll, we'll have some eight for 16 kind of games um, coming up. That would be nice. Absolutely. And to close this game out, I think, you know, one thing I saw, I, every game we've had somebody from the bench do something nice. And for Alex O'Connell to break out of his slump and be that guy this game was really good to see because, again, once ACC season starts, we're going to need all of these guys to be on their games. And, and especially these guys on the bench, when their number is called, they have to be able to produce. And it's going to be great for us and hell for everyone else if that production is going to come from someone different every single night. Hey, our 12th Grammy of the year, I, I'm not certain. I think it was either our ninth or 10th different starting lineup because Joey Baker, like we said, Joey Baker got the start. First time he's gotten a start. But I mean, it's crazy. You, you talk about these guys off the bench and I'm like, which one? Because it's it's like almost the whole team is yeah. the bench. You never know who's going to um, step up and play a big role for this team. Uh, to me, uh, you know, Vernon Carey, Trey Jones when he's healthy, and maybe Cassius Stanley are the only surefire starters. Everyone else might as well be a bench player because they're figuring out which one of the, uh, you know, which one of them is going to play really well and get minutes that game versus the next game. This episode of the Duke Basketball Report podcast is brought to you by Bird Campbell, PA, your Duke-centric business law firm with offices in Florida and right here in Texas where I am right now. If you or a loved one is in need of legal representation and you want some lawyers that get the job done in the courtroom and say, go to hell Carolina with you, these are the guys for you. Head to their website at birdcampbell.com because you know Bird Campbell means business. Okay, Jason, we have two games this week. We are done with the non-conference schedule, and we finally dive fully into ACC season after that one game we did have earlier against Virginia Tech. First, a New Year's Day or New Year's Eve affair, I should say, against Boston College. And then on Saturday, we traveled to Miami to take on the Hurricanes. So, Jason, because there's two of us, here's how we're going to do this. We're going to I'm going to let you give me a quick preview of what we should expect against the Eagles, and I'll follow up with what we should look for against the U. How about that? That sounds good. So I get to start with Boston College, huh? Let's do that. Okay. So the first thing about Boston College is it's tough to tell which Boston College team we're going to see because this is a team that was playing terrible at one point. Uh, right around the start of December, they lost five out of six games. And let's be clear. They lost to Belmont by 15 points. They lost to St. Louis by 10 points. They lost to Richmond by 20. Let me repeat that. They lost to Richmond by 20, and they, they lost by 18 points to Northwestern. It looked like their season was going down the tubes. And then suddenly they kind of turned it around a little bit. They had a nice win over Notre Dame um, that was at Notre Dame. Um, they, they, beat, they beat California Cal on a, uh, on a neutral floor. Um, I, I mean, 
you know, they've won four in a row. I'm not saying BC is a really good team. They're not in the top 100 in any of the advanced metrics or anything like that. They're a team that that really struggles on offense. They're a fairly good defensive team, but they're they're very, very weak on offense. Not a good um, two-point or three-point shooting team. Not a particularly uh, – they're not a good rebounding team. Um, uh, so, you know, in, in sort of, you know, those kind of metrics, it looks like they're struggling. But – but again, they've they've played fairly well recently. They are two and zero in the ACC. Uh, I I I did not expect them to get you know many ACC wins. If you told me they were only going to get maybe three or four ACC wins all season, I would have said yeah, that's about right. Well, they've already beaten Wake Forest and they've already beaten Notre Dame. Those are not teams at the top of the ACC, but it shows that Boston College shouldn't be overlooked by any stretch of the imagination. And in terms of who to watch out for, uh, Duke fans immediately are going to recognize the starting point guard, um, a senior. Derek Thornton, who was at Duke, God, Donald, was it five years ago? <laughs> Four or five it's, years ago? It seemed longer than that. <laughs> yeah. Derek Thornton, you know, came to Duke for one season, wasn't really satisfied with his role and, and moved on first to Southern Cal. And now I, I, he graduated from Southern Cal and he's a grad transfer playing now at Boston College. And he's their leading scorer. He's, he's done a very nice job for them. He, he's the guy who's got the ball in his hands probably as much, if not more than anybody else. Um, you know, uh, he's their leading assist guy. And, uh, I, you know, it'll be interesting to see him against against Trey Jones and Jordan Goldwire at the point. Um, if we're able to cut off Derek Thornton, I think that that's, you know, that's going to be a major, major problem for Boston College. The other guy that they have that that plays a bit for them, um, you know, on the post, sort of their best post player is Stephon Mitchell. Um, he's got some nice length. He can block some shots pretty well. Uh, he's clearly their best rebounder. Um, but this is a Boston College team that, you know, like I was saying, looks like they're probably pretty much at the at the bottom of the ACC. They're not they're not a uh, they're, they're not going to be a big threat if Duke plays well. But I mean, let's face it, if if we are once again, you know, not hitting any of our outside shots and we still got some rust, then then this could be a tougher game than we'd like. But I mean, my my gut says, you know, picking the devils by by double digits, something in the. 13, 15 point range is probably a really, really safe bet um, against a Boston College team that just doesn't feel like they've got the same level of talent as most of the other teams in the ACC. They are an experienced team. I mean, they've, they've got a lot of, uh, you know, mo- virtually all the guys that they play, other than there's a freshman named Jay Heath, but pretty much everybody else who plays for them um, tend to be older guys, juniors and seniors. And uh, so they'll have that advantage on Duke. But um, but other than that, you know, I, I don't I don't see a lot here that we need to be super concerned about. Um, if if Duke is able to get a little bit of offensive production, um, Boston College just shouldn't be able to keep up with us. I think they may struggle a bit with guys like Vernon Carey in the post, um, but who doesn't these days? All right, what you got for me on the other game? Well, we travel to Miami on Saturday. Obviously, uh, I've looked a lot at the Hurricanes this year. And the one thing that we should always expect when we go to Coral Gables is that there's going to be two things. They're going to play tough. They have usually have very tough guards that play physical and there's going to be a team that, you know, plays with intention. They want to, they want to dunk the ball. They want to show out, they want to, you know, make threes and they want to blow people out of the gym. Problem is they don't necessarily do that all the time. And this year uh, they're eight and three, but their three losses are pretty decent losses. They lost to, uh, Louisville at the start of the season, they also lost to St. John, not St. John's, they lost to Florida and they lost to UConn in their holiday tournament. The UConn game is probably the weakest uh, of their losses. But the one thing that they do have, they do have a lot of experience led by Dejan Vasilovic. 
he's been there probably like it seems, seems like six years, uh, but he's there. He's their guy. You know, Cameron Mcgusty also is going to lead them uh, in points. And Chris likes. Uh, so they have a three headed system at, at the guard spot and the wings that are going to be able to attack you from anywhere. The, together, they average about 45 points a game. So that's going to be the bulk of their uh, scoring. On defense, though, that is where they're running into trouble. They average, uh, they allow like 72 points a game. That's a lot of points uh, for a defense. I think for us, we're averaging closer to like 60 points a game. And I think at the end of the day, that's going to be the difference for us. We can rebound. We can out-rebound them. We can drive them up and down the court. They're not going to turn the ball over a lot, but they are going to miss a lot of shots. They do hit threes. They don't take a lot of them, but they do hit them when they take them. They're about a 40% uh, from the uh, from the three point line as a team, yeah, if we get them to the line, help. Go ahead. They're the twelfth. They're the twelfth best three point shooting team in the country, so they can definitely hit their threes. They can definitely hit them, but they don't take as many. I think they only take about you know twenty percent of their shots are three pointers, whereas most teams right now these days are averaging closer to forty five, fifty percent. At the end of the day, if we get them to the line, they have some guys that are terrible from the free from the free throw line. Not to say that we are lighting up the world, but the last few games we have been good from the free throw line. So our key for this game is to get to the line, make sure they get the guards in foul trouble. And really, this is where we're going to need Trey Jones because Trey Jones, Jordan Goldwire, those guys commanding uh, on defense at the top of the key, that is going to be something that really frustrates them because when likes Vasiljevich and McCusty, uh, when those guys are off their game, this is when Miami struggles. So uh, I'm looking forward to that battle and hopefully we'll see a healthy Trey Jones on the court and really distributed because on offense inside, you know, the tank is going to get his points and on the outside, they're not good at defending the three and that's where they've been burned in the three losses that they have to Louisville, Florida and UConn. So that's what I'm looking for against the hurricanes and really we're, we're in the ACC season. So as you said, Jason, all these games matter now and Every game, we're going to expect to get the best from our opponent, and we should not expect anything less in Coral Gables on Saturday night. Yeah, and the only quick comment I would add to that, first of all, it, you know, we shouldn't overlook Miami um, because their three losses are to three very good teams. I mean, th- mm-hmm. th- those three losses are, are clearly the three teams that are going to make the tournament. I mean, UConn, maybe you kind of bubble, like but, the bubble-ish. Like, that's yeah, the only one that would consider a bubble. Right, right. But, um, uh, you know... It, it's not like they're out there. Miami's out there losing to really bad teams. But the the one stat I was going to point out is that Miami is a terrible rebounding team. I mean, like you didn't you didn't make it abundant enough. This is a this is a team that's like in the bottom thirty or so in the nation in rebounding. Um, they are two hundred ninety fifth in offensive rebounding and three hundred eighteenth in defensive rebounding. Whew. Those are bad numbers. Duke will need to own the glass. Um, uh, to 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 really frustrate them and and make it you know impossible for this uh, Miami team to to have much of a chance against the Blue Devils and look that that's been one of our strengths. Anytime your strength is going against their weakness, you have to be happy about it, and um, that 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 feels like one of our real real strengths. Okay, Jason, we now come to our Player of the Week segment. We only have one game, the game we just saw, but who is your Player of the Week for this week? I thought it was pretty obvious. It's clear to me that Vernon O'Connell was the Player of the Game, uh, Player of the Week. (laughs) In the first half, it was Vernon Carey. In the second half, it was Alex O'Connell. If you make me pick one, I'll pick 
Alex O'Connell because it's been a, a while since we've had him um, play this well, uh, and I feel so you know feel so good for him. He's a, he's a player who's always been sort of one of my favorites. But uh, but if I can, I will make the pick of Vernon O'Connell as the player of the week. See, I thought we were going to agree, and you went with Vernon O'Connell. I went with Alex Carey. And uh, uh, he had a great game. He too. had a great game, too. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think if you're going to, you know, if we're going to pick one, I'm going to also go with Alex O'Connell. Uh, his his 14 points, especially in the second half, just the way he shot the ball was really the catalyst for us running, you know, running away with it at the end. So I'm going to give it to him. But again, uh, shout out to Vernon, Vernon O'Connell and Alex Carey for their contributions this week for Duke basketball. All right, our last segment, Jason, as always, parting shots. I'll start with you. Yeah, so I wanted to talk very briefly. There's been a growing rumor going on. Um, uh, there was an article in The Athletic. Sam Vincini of The Athletic wrote an article. He was out in Las Vegas this past weekend. There are a few, uh, few high-profile uh, NCAA games that attracted a lot of NBA scouts. And so uh, he was talking to uh, NBA scouts who were out there about just the general state of college basketball. And he got a sense from these scouts. They don't have anyone inside. They don't have any, you know, secret info or anything like that. But he got the sense that they don't expect Cole Anthony to play anymore for UNC. Cole Anthony, Carolina's best player, is currently injured. Um, uh, it looks like, you know, it was a men meniscus kind of injury in his knee. And the expectation was that he'd be back probably middle of January or so. Um, but there, there's all this bubbling stuff. It's sounding more and more. People are thinking he may not bother to come back at all. He's a lock to be a top five pick in the NBA draft. And and there's this growing belief that that he may just decide to pack it up, um, uh, you know, not, not bother to play anymore for Carolina. He can't really improve his stock that much. And the Carolina team is not as good as preseason expectations would have had for you. Um, and as a result, it, it feels like, you know, why would he bother to come back and play for a team that is going to struggle to even make the NCAA tournament? And that's why I think the next several games where Carolina is playing without, uh, I'm sorry, without Cole Anthony um, are really big for them. Um, they're going to have to put up some wins uh, it's a, the, the front half of their ACC schedule is far and away easier than the back half. We've talked about this a little bit. Um, they play all the top ACC teams in the back half of the schedule. So if they can avoid losses to these bad teams they're playing over the next couple of weeks, then when Cole Anthony's time to make his decision, um, you know, when he's, when he's over his injury, he can, if he looks up in Carolina, you know, is – uh, you know, only has maybe one ACC loss or something like that, then he can go, oh, okay, this is a team that's really in there. This is a team that has a, a chance um, to, to, uh, to to contend in the ACC. Um, but if he looks up in Carolina, you know, they're sitting at, you know, three or four ACC losses, which is not impossible to imagine. Um, he may go, ah, you know what? I mean, we already, we're, we're just not having a great season. Um, and And he may say, we should, you know, I should just pack it in. And I think this is, this article wasn't just talking about Cole Anthony. There, there are a number of, uh, you know, of of guys who look like lottery picks who are saying, you know what, I'm I'm sort of stepping away for the moment, um, and, and I think it's affecting college basketball in a way that you know we hadn't really anticipated. We've talked a little bit on this podcast about the fact that the efficiency numbers for the top teams in college basketball this year are so much worse 
than what we've seen in the past. If you look at the like Ohio State and Duke right now are the top two teams in the Ken Palm rankings. If you looked at their their efficiency margin compared to teams of last year, they would be no more than like top 15 or so in the country. Top two this year means you're like barely a sweet 16 team last year. Think about that. And I think one of the causes of that is guys rushing to the pros, guys being more interested in preserving their pro stock than they are in um, in helping their college team. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I heard an incredible stat the other day, and, and I know I'm venturing all over the place. I, I apologize, Donald. <laughs> I'm, I'm all over the place on this parting shot, but there's just a lot of thoughts going, a lot of things I've been looking at. Um, the number of underclassmen who stayed in the NBA draft and did not return to college over the past few years is indicative of the talent drain we're seeing from the game. So in 2016, there were 59 underclassmen who who went to the pros, who gave up years of eligibility. In 2017, it was 64, 59, 64. That's not that big a number. 2018, it went to 79. Okay, suddenly we've jumped by nearly 20%, by more than 20%. And in 2019, last year, it went up to 86 players. 86 underclassmen who had eligibility remaining chose to go into the NBA draft and and stay in the NBA draft. Now, look, not all those guys. only draft 60 total. Yeah, not all those guys ended up playing in the NBA. Mm -hmm. There are a number of them playing in the G League right now. Um, There are a number of them who went and played overseas. But the reality is the G League has become a lot more attractive. You know, guys who get, it used to be guys came out when they went, hey, I'm going to be a first rounder. Now guys come out when they go, you know what? Second round isn't that bad. If I'm a second rounder, I'm still going to get, you know, perhaps a guaranteed contract. And if not a guaranteed contract, I'm going to get an NBA, I'm going to get a G League two-way contract. Mm -hmm. And the two-way contracts are paying guys 150 plus a year. It's not millions. It's not you're set for life. $150,000 a year ain't bad money for a 20, 21-year-old. Um, so I think it's become a lot easier for these guys to turn pro early. And as a result, there's a talent drain in college basketball. Guys are protecting themselves for the draft. Guys are going into the draft and focused on turning pro, you know, perhaps a lot earlier than they used to. And it's changing the game. We are not seeing as much talent in college basketball as we used to. But guess what, Donald? There is a solution to all of this. Believe it or not, I think that this is going to change in the next couple of years. And you know what's going to change it? The legislatures. No, not to and through. The courts and the legislatures. They are going to force name, likeness, and image to become something that the NCAA has to deal with. Athletes are going to get paid while they are still in college for their name, their likeness, and their image. Mm -hmm. And it's going to allow some of these fringe players to make money while they're still in school. And suddenly, hey, I could go out now and I can get a G League contract and I get a two-way contract for $100,000, you know, $175,000. That sounds pretty good. But suddenly, staying in school is going to mean that you can get some fairly decent money as well. Probably not that much, but you can do pretty darn well. Something and where it's some, offset. Yeah. yeah for, for stars, it is going to be that kind of money. In fact, it's going to be more than that kind of money. So I think this is the salvation. We're going to see a down year this year. We may see another down year next year, but then it's going to start to turn around because we're going to start to see this name, likeness, and image compensation make a difference and become a force opposing the tug and the pull of professional dollars. Well, so, I mean, we, we talked about this a, a few podcast episodes ago. We talked about the California legislate, 
uh, legislation that passed yep. that takes effect in 2023. I think that is the that is the the circle on the calendar. That's when we're looking at because at that exactly. point the NCAA is going to have to make something happen, or California is going to make it happen for them. And when California happens, that means the whole rest of the nation is probably going to fall in line because they're not going to want to lose. These, these colleges aren't going to want to lose the best players in the country to California because they know California is going to pay more than what they can offer. So it's going to be something where the NCAA is going to have to come in and make something happen in the next three years, or it's not going to happen at all. And we're going to, it's going to be the wild, wild west again. Yeah. And the NCAA does not want to stage their tournaments. They don't want to stage um, any, any of their postseason contests without any schools from California. I mean, right. <laughs> that would be crazy. Right. So <laughs> And by the way, UCLA, I want to UCLA apologize. if they're good, then they, they come in. Okay, sure. You go ahead and do that. Yeah. Boy, boy how, how hard is UCLA falling as a program? <sighs> hey, I wanted to apologize. That was a long, <laughs> meandering parting <laughs> shot. It started with Cole Anthony, and he may not come back to school, and ended with the salvation of college basketball being paying yeah. the players. But, uh, you know, it all kind of connected a little bit, maybe. It all connected. I don't know. <laughs> it's, nice, it's a nice, windy road that is college basketball. Um, I'm going to go to college football for my parting shot. Uh, I don't know if you saw this a couple of days ago, but there was the Holiday Bowl between Iowa and USC, uh, speaking of California teams. And one thing that was really cool, and I, I'm sure you've seen this over the years, is Iowa has developed what has become one of the better sports traditions in uh, at the end of the first quarter uh, at Kinnick Stadium when they're at home the children's hospital overlooks the stadium and the patients that are there watch the game through the windows. And so at the end of the first quarter, they, a few years ago, they just started waving at the players and they would always wave when they were shown on TV. But at a certain point, the players would stop what they were doing and turn around and wave back. And then it became where the whole stadium waved back. So it's become this tradition. Uh, one thing that was cool uh, the other night at the holiday bowl is that the holiday bowl brought that tradition to San Diego. They showed the uh, patients at the hospital on the Jumbotron in San Diego. Of course, they were not in San Diego, but they showed them on the Jumbotron and they did the wave virtually. And even the players at USC uh, were, were taking part, all the fans uh, in the entire stadium were taking part. I think that's a really cool tradition. Uh, involves the kids, involves something that is unique to uh, that particular stadium and, and you're just unique to that particular university that's become one of the great sports traditions uh, in my mind. So hats off to the Holiday Bowl for making that happen and hats off obviously to Iowa and USC for facilitating and making, uh, you know, a five minute thing, you know, become something that really helps these kids who are fighting some of the, the, the you know, worst diseases imaginable uh, having given a smile on their face as they watch their teams play football. Yeah, and yeah I, so here's the di here's here's the difference in the, in the TVR podcast. Here, here here's the content you come for. From me, you get a 10-minute rambling monologue <laughs> about paying the, about how to make these millionaires millionaires faster and from Donald, you get how do you make some sick kids happier. I I am shamed at your There's your no party shame. Shot. There is no Way shame. To go, man. It's I one like of those it. things that is just it's it's always cool to see something like that. And, and the thing, you know, we have our own traditions and everyone has traditions. That's just one that's really unique. Uh, we could never do that because we don't have a children's hospital that overlooks, you know, Wallace Wade or, or, or is attached to Cameron. Uh, so it's not something that we could do, but I think it's obviously something that they've taken advantage of a quirky thing that 
is their stadium and made it something really great. That, that's always cool to see. Awesome. Awesome. And that's going to do it for episode 179 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. The last episode of the decade. We want to wish all of you out there a Merry New Year, as they say in Trading Places. And we will see you in 2020. Duke Band, take us home.